In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 24, I want to preach on this subject. They sang about it. We sang about it in a couple of, of songs and in the, mentioned in the Sunday school class about winners and winning. And I want to preach on the subject walking with winners. Walking with winners. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that you may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. He's what he said, they, those who are in a physical race, maybe in an Olympic marathon, uh, they do it to win a corruptible crown. But we, we Christians, am incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Father, I pray that you'd bless us as we come before your throne with the word of God this morning. Lord, we understand that it's completely true, all true, from cover to cover, every word. And Lord, it'll be helpful to us if the Holy Spirit takes it and makes it work in our hearts this morning. I pray that you'd bless in a wonderful way. In Jesus' name, amen. I've loved, loved the singing all last week. We had some really, really great singing. Uh, the crowd was just singing. The congregation doing a tremendous job. Good special music. And uh, I, I love good music. And sometimes I've I catch myself not listening to it, and then I turn it on, maybe in my car or something, some good gospel music, and I think, man, why didn't I have this on earlier? This is helping raise my heart a little bit. And I love an old southern gospel song that I heard sung by the Inspirations Quartet. Uh, They sang it years ago. I guess they still do. Uh, Jesus is mine. And one part of that chorus goes like this. Listen, I won't sing it you're saying thankfully (laughs) I'll read it there is such gladness and there's no sadness glory light shines singing and shouting never more doubting love so divine marching with winners calling the sinners Jesus is mine exposes the heart of perhaps a newer Christian who is enthralled by the thought that Hey, Jesus is mine. I was wandering, lost. Now I'm saved. And boy, he's making a difference in my life. He's changing my life. He's changed my attitude. He's changed my actions. And now I'm marching with winners. I mean, if you're marching with Jesus, if you're walking with Jesus as a Christian, you're walking with the winner. And we are on the winning side. But there's others in this race as well. And marching... With winners, walking with winners is what I want to talk about today. It's just struck my heart to think about that today. And so I want to think about the fact that we've been in revival and we probably got some renewal going on in our heart, and we need to keep that winning attitude. Megan's testimony this past week, she said some nice things about me and about Aaron, but most of our testimonies seem to be focused towards my wife, Karen. And many times a pastor's wife is kind of pushed into the background and people like her a lot of times, but they don't really recognize uh, her value. And Megan was given 
homage to the fact that Miss Karen is, and she used this word, Megan used this word over and over again in her testimony about consistency. And I got to thinking about that. Consistency. That's what makes our, that's what makes our lives as a Christian more valuable to Christ and what makes us able to march with winners when we're living a consistent life. A winning attitude, a winning way of life, winning the lost, just as a daily endeavor, having that winning attitude. That's not to say it's prideful because we know that without him we would be nothing. But since we are on the winning side, we're marching with him and we're marching with winners, with those around us. And some of those things are discussed in our text that we read this morning. Our text talks about the Christian race. Would you like to walk with winners? I mean, who wants to be on the losing side, right? You want to walk with winners. And how do we know if we're winning? How do we know if we're winning? We could be losing and not know it. Or we could be winning and not know it. So how do we know? We keep score. We measure ourselves against what we were previously and in an ongoing fashion we check ourselves out, examine ourselves since we're in the faith to see how we're doing in the faith. And as I, as I was a little boy growing up in a uh, little country church there in the neighborhood, or I say neighborhood, we lived in the hills and uh, community, I guess, would be a better word. And the little old church had one of those uh, oak boards on the wall. You've seen them before. And had a place. It, they kept score on their church by they'd have the offering listed, how much the offering was this week, how much it was last week. And so what are they doing? They're measuring the score. And they'd have the attendance in Sunday school this week and attendance in Sunday school last week. And what are they doing? They're keeping score. And attendance this Sunday in the morning service as compared to last week, and they're keeping score. That way they can kind of tell where they're going. Now, that's not, a, that's not a bad idea, I guess. I think there's other ways to keep score, though. And we can keep score on the church, and we can keep score on ourselves. We're not to keep score on somebody else, but on ourselves. You see, we are in a competition, but... We're in a competition with ourselves. We're not in competition with some other church. I hope other churches do good. I hope they win people to Christ. I hope they disciple them and keep them living for the Lord. So we're not in a competition with them. Our church is in a competition with itself to see if we can do better than we did last year. And as a Christian, I'm supposed to be in a competition with myself to see if I'm doing as well or better than I was before. How's my prayer life? How's my Bible reading? How's my church attendance? How's my soul winning? Am I doing better than I was before? I ought to keep score on myself. Otherwise, how do we know how we're doing in this Christian race? If anyone was ever considered a winner in the Christian life, I suppose the writer of our text, the Apostle Paul, would probably be considered a real winner in the Christian life. And he personally, Paul personally models at least three characteristics of a winning Christian life. Three characteristics of a genuine winner. And the first one is this. Winners are contenders. 
I mean, first of all, you've got to be in the race, right? I mean, you can sit on the sidelines, you can sit on the bleachers, and you see everybody else running, and you might even cheer and be excited for them, but I've got to be in the race in this Christian life. I've got to be in the race. You've got to be in the race. If you're saved, there's a race for you to run, and it's a race against yourself. Winners are contenders, so we've got to be in the race. It says in our text in verse number 24, so run. That's kind of like a command, isn't it? So run that you may obtain. And we're going to talk about what we might obtain a little bit later. If ever, uh, if ever a person was a contender in the Christian faith, I would suppose the Apostle Paul would be one of them. He was a contender. He didn't just... He didn't just live life. I mean, he saddled life up and got on it and rode it like a racehorse. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he was moving on. He was contending, and he was trying to do better now than he was before. In Acts 14, he's preaching to a, a crowd at Lystra. And you know what happens at Lystra, right? They didn't like, the Jews that were there didn't like his preaching. And don't get any ideas here. But they stoned him, they left him lying. He was lying on the ground with a mound of rocks on top of him. Even, even his friends, the other, the other disciples that were with him, his team members, they're probably standing there thinking, well, I guess that's it. So much for old Paul. He was a good guy. I guess it's time for us to go home. And, and then somebody says, wait, I hear something. There's some rocks getting shuffled around. Some more rocks get shuffled around in that mound. Pretty soon a head pops up. Guess who it is? It's old Paul. He gets up and brushes the dust off and pushes the rocks away. And they said, we better get out of here. He said, no, I'm going back to town. <laughs> you know, he was a contender. He was not a quitter. And so many times in this day and time in which we live, Christianity has become weak-kneed and sissified, and some people just quit Christianity. They say, man, it's just too much work to be a Christian, you know? Not Paul, man. He's a contender. He's working to stay in the race. He got up and went back into the city. I guess that's why being a contender is why he can say at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought a good fight. I finished my course. I finished my course. I have kept the faith. Boy, I'd like to be able to say that. Amen. I don't want to get knocked out of the race. Now, when he says in our text that he didn't want to become a castaway, now he was not talking about losing his salvation, friend. When you've got salvation, Jesus says, I will, the one that comes to him, he says, I will in no wise cast out. He says you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. When you're saved, you're saved. And there's nothing that can change that. You wasn't saved by your good deeds and you're not lost again by your bad ones. <laughs> when you're saved, you're kept safe. Now, I could preach a whole message on that. and Boy, we need those too. But Paul wasn't talking about being a castaway in the sense of being one who lost his salvation. He's talking about being a castaway because he used to be useful to God. He used to be in the race. He said, I don't want to be a castaway. I don't want to be put on a shelf and not used anymore. I want to be used of God. That's what Paul said. Contenders don't settle for mediocrity and contenders don't quit. There's two characteristics of contenders. First of all, they're competitive. <laughs> 
And while athletes compete against one another, we as Christians are not competing against other Christians. The Bible says comparing yourselves among yourselves, you're not wise. And so we don't, we don't say, well, I'm doing, I'm doing better than old Brother Lloyd. <laughs> no, I, might, I probably am, but don't tell him. I'm doing better than old sister so-and-so. That's not the way we're supposed to compare ourselves or that's not the competition and that's not the type of contending that we're doing. We're contending against ourselves to see where we were a week ago, a month ago, a year ago. Am I gaining or losing against myself? You see, we're, we're, we're competing actually about three things in this world in which we live. First, we're, we're competing against society. How many of you know we live in a wicked culture? <laughs> we live in a wicked time. We live in a time where the fads and fashions of the world and the, and the ideologies and the philosophies and the religions of the world all come in to try to crash us and knock us out of the race. So we're, we're, we're contending against society. And when I say contending against it, that doesn't mean we're supposed to hate other people. It means we're supposed to try to win them and let them come over to our side because I'm on the winning side. And then we're also contending against satanic forces. I fully believe with all my heart that what's going on in the war against Israel right now is nothing less than satanic forces. And satanic forces will attack your family. Satanic forces will attack your church. Satanic forces will try to move in against you. The devil might not have time to tend to every one of us individually, but he's got plenty of devils and demons that he can send some to take care of all of us if we let him. But I'm on the winning side. I want to have the winning attitude. Then we're also <clears throat> contending against selfish forces. You know who wants to be number one? Listen to me. You know who wants to be number one in your life? You. You. <laughs> The person you look at in the mirror every day says, I'm the great me. I'm looking out for number one. And I'm the most important one. You know, I know somebody else has got a need, but I haven't got time to take care of that. I've got to take care of me. I'm the victim. I'm the one who needs to be enriched. And so that's called the flesh, the carnal nature that dwells within us. Just because you got saved doesn't mean you lost your carnal nature. You still got it. But the more you yield to the Holy Spirit, the more of the spiritual nature you have. So we're dealing against society, Satan, and selfishness. And if you, sometimes you may feel like, listen to this, sometimes you may feel like I've fallen so many times. <laughs> I've tried to live the Christian life and boy, it just seems like about the time I get excited about it, something happens and knocks me out of the race again. I'm tired of getting up. A just man follows seven times, the scripture says, and yet he rises up again. Can I just tell you the good news is that no matter how many times you've fallen, you can get back up. Listen, you can get back up and get back in the race today. And God can bless you once again. You say, but you don't know how bad it's been for me. You don't know how much... Bad health. You don't know what kind of sin I've been involved in. I know that God can use you again. The one that keeps you set on the shelf is you. God doesn't want you to be on the shelf. He wants to use you. You say, but my sin is really, really bad. Confess it. Forsake it. 
God says in first or in first John chapter one verse nine that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Our job is to confess it. Get up and go again. You say, "What if I fall again?" Get up every time and go again. Never get up. If you lay down and quit, you know who the winner is? That's the devil. And you don't want him to have the victory. Why? Because I'm on the winning side. I'm wanting to march with the winners. Never settle for a losing attitude. In 1972, I went to carpenter school. I hadn't been out of high school long. and I'd worked construction a little bit. And uh, Arkansas was putting on what they called a manpower program, and they would actually pay you an hourly wage to go to school. I thought, well, that can't be too bad. So I enrolled in carpenter school. My dad had been a carpenter, and so I knew a little bit about it. I thought this would be a breeze. So I'll get in carpenter school, get paid for it, and maybe I'll keep being a carpenter when I get out. But if not, at least I got paid while I was in. Well, that old carpenter that taught the class, I thought he was going to take us in there and pull out a bunch of hand saws and hammers and nails. You know what he did? He pulled out a carpenter's textbook and kept us in class for weeks and weeks teaching us out of a book. I thought, when are we going to get around to building something? But he's teaching us out of a book. He taught us math, algebra. I heard about the guy that's on his deathbed, deathbed and saying his last words. I said, do you have anything last you want to say? He said, I've lived my whole life and never had to use algebra. <laughs> well, I, I guess I've had that attitude before myself. I used to say that the only reason math was invented was for teachers to torture students. <laughs> it was not my strong suit. But that old carpenter taught us that to cut a rafter and stairs and figure square footage and stuff, Cubic yards of concrete, you need to know math. You ain't got to know, cut a rafter, you got to know a little bit of geometry. <laughs> I thought, man, this, I guess I'm getting paid. I'll suffer through this. He showed us so many things I didn't know. I thought I knew more than him to start with, but it turned out he was way smarter than I thought. He taught us how to cut stairways. The first job I got after I got out of carpenter school, I was working with a framing crew over in Horseshoe Bend and and the framing crew, they, they were a bunch of knuckleheads. I mean, they were rough and tough old uh, construction workers, and, and they seemed to thrive on putting each other down, you know. And so since I was a new guy on the crew, I was relegated to the most laborious and simple tasks that a guy could do. And I thought to myself, don't they know I've been to carpenter school? <laughs> Driving nails was about the extent of anything I got to do and carry lumber. The foreman was down in the basement one day. He said, boys, you keep, you keep nailing off that plywood on the subfloor and, and on the roof deck. And he said, I've got to cut a set of stairs. And this was a little more difficult set than normal. And so he started trying to cut the stairway. And you've got to make them out of two-by-twelves, you know, long two-by-twelves, and that's expensive material. Well, he took his framing square and he tried to mark it off and, he got a, got a couple, of, three of those two-by-twelves marked off and cut out and tried to put them in place, and they didn't fit. He had a little short step at the bottom. It was about that high where you'd be sure to trip on. And then at the top, he had a high step up there. He threw all of those away, got out two more, two or three more two-by-twelves and cut them, and he stuck them up there, and it was just the opposite. It was as bad as it was the first time. And he's just having a mad cussing fit. I said, Bob... 
they taught us how to cut stairs in carpenter school. Would you give me a try? He said, get back to driving nails, Brooks. I don't need your help. And so he tried again. <laughs> and he failed again. I mean, he knew it wouldn't pass inspection. I said, Bob, I'd, I'd still like to cut those. All right, Brooks, get over and see what you can do. You'll just ruin another couple of two-by-twelves for us. And so I got down, calculated the stair stringers out according to the mathematical formulas that our carpenter teacher had given me. Man, they fit like a glove. Every step was the same, all the way from top to the bottom. Even the bottom, top, bottom step and top step come out perfect. I called him over to look at it and see if it passed his judgment. And he said, can't believe you've done that, Brooks. Man, he just cussed and stomped away. And said, All right, you're our official stair cutter from now on. <laughs> you know why I did that? Not in competition with him. You know what I needed to know? Listen to me. I needed to know that I was not a worthless guy who couldn't do anything but carry some lumber. I needed to be in competition with myself to prove I was worth something. Listen, friend, if you're saved, God didn't save you because you wasn't worth anything. God saved you to use you, and you're valuable to him, and he can use you. But you've got to have the winning attitude. Contenders are not only competitive, but they're goal-oriented. They're goal-oriented. In our text, he talks about the prize. Winning the prize. In Philippians 3.14, the same Apostle Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Goal-oriented. You see, when we get saved, we're not just meandering here and yonder and doing nothing. Not just killing time as a Christian. God saved you for a purpose. There's a goal. And if you don't have a goal in your life, you will be meandering and you'll feel worthless. The prize. Do you think only a few select people can win the prize? God made prizes available for every Christian. He gave you gifts and abilities that he didn't give to everybody else. And you might not be the same person that someone else is famous like they do, but God gave you something to do and people that you can reach that nobody else can do and nobody else can reach. Spud Webb. I mean, you guys remember Spud Webb. These, these athletic guys do. Spud Webb. He was among the 10 shortest basketball players ever in the NBA. He was 5'7". Five, 5'7". Seven. Five, seven. I'm taller than Spud Webb. <laughs> wow, that's short. Five, seven. Do you know what happened when he'd walk out on the court with seven-foot-tall guys? They laughed at him. <laughs> what are you doing out here? You can't do anything. <laughs> but he was goal-oriented. Goal-oriented. He wanted to win the prize. And in 1985, he signed with the Atlanta Hawks, then went on to play with the Sacramento Kings, the Minnesota Timberwolves, and the Orlando Magic. And he's well remembered for winning the 1986 NBA Slam Dunk Contest. I remember seeing the guy. Man, he'd be running down the court and he'd spring up to dunk the ball. And man, it looked like I could walk under his feet. The guy could fly. <laughs> Superman, 5'7". 
And if he'd have listened to everybody else, he would have said, no use me getting on the court with seven-foot guys. <laughs> you can be a winner for Christ. What's the prize in the Christian life? What is the reward? Most people would say, well, probably heaven. Heaven is an assured gain for you when you get saved. But you don't have to compete to get heaven. You see, you're not rewarded by your good life that's why we needed a Savior. That's why Jesus Christ died on the cross because I could never live good enough to earn heaven. So we're not talking about heaven. One of the prizes is the changed life. Are you listening to me right here? The changed life. One, one prize is you don't have to be in that chain of losers. You can have a changed life. I don't care if you come from a long line of drug users, you can break the cycle. I don't care if you grew up in an alcoholic's home, you can still be a winner for Christ. I don't care if you came from an abusive background and negative talk, you can be a winner for Christ because He lives in you when you get saved. There's three dynamic changes or transformations that take place when you belong to Christ. Number one is justification. Now, here's some big theological terms, but I'll tell you. Justification just means that you've been justified, your sins are washed clean, and you're saved. That's justification. Then comes sanctification. After you're justified, don't get the cart before the horse. You don't get saved by being good, but after you get saved, you ought to be good. When you get saved, Christ means for you to have a changed life because you've got a new heart. You've got a, you've got a new spirit living within. You've been changed because he has forgiven you and you've got new potential. And now he expects sanctification. What does that big word mean? Sanctification means you become holy. I don't mean you sit around like a monk and go, mm, no, we're not talking about that kind of holy We're talking about holy as set apart for him. You say you belong to the world and you belong to the devil before you got saved, but now you're changed. Now you're different. Now you're justified and you're on your way to being sanctified. Sanctified just means you're getting further and further away from the world's ways and the world's attraction and away from sin. God didn't save you to wallow in the same sin that he found you in. You're changed. You're a child of the king. You're on the winning side. And so sanctification means you're becoming more Christ-like the longer you're saved. And then there's glorification that will come along when you finally go to be with the Lord. He will glorify you. We don't know exactly what we'll be like, but the scripture says whatever he's like, we're going to be like him. That'll be a grand day. When you leave this world, you're going to drop that fleshly, carnal nature behind and you'll be completely sanctified away from sin at that point, from the presence of sin. But now there's something else. We're talking about the prize. Stay with me. We're talking about rewards. There's such things as rewards. You say, some people get saved and say, well, I'm saved now. I'm on my way to heaven. I'm not going to hell, so I guess that's all that matters. So now I can do as I please and not worry about living for the Lord. Wrong. 
When we get saved, that just makes us able to live for the Lord. And he has rewards for us. And those rewards are real. And it's not wrong. Some people think, well, that's pretty worldly to think about rewards. Well, I'm not so spiritual that I'm not enjoying rewards. <laughs> I, uh, I enjoy rewards. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. Listen to this. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build on this foundation, talking about from the day you get saved, from the day you get saved, you're building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He says, Now, if any man build on this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. So whatever you've done, listen, friend, Christian, everything you've done from day one since you've been saved. Now, when you got saved, the past is in the past, and he's not going to judge you for that again. That was judged on the cross of Calvary. But from the day you get saved forward, you will be judged as a Christian for the good deeds you did, for the rewards you earn when you get to heaven, will be rewarded. And he says... Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon he shall receive a reward. Now God said that so I'm not embarrassed about saying I'm looking forward to getting some rewards. He, He promised it. Do I have to be ashamed or embarrassed or feel worldly because I expect to get the rewards that he said he's going to give me? That's his idea, not mine. But he says, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. His work, from the day he got saved, if he did things with the wrong motive, it's going to be burned up. Wood, hay, and stubble. Going up in a blaze. Anything we did for Christ will last. Anything we did selfishly for ourselves without having Christ in mind will be burned up. So what does that mean? We're going to be lost then, right? Go to hell. No, that's not what it says. Let's read the rest of it. He said, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. Loss of what? Loss of rewards, because let's read the rest. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. He's saying, if you never did anything great for Christ after being saved, you're still going to make it to heaven. He said, he shall be saved, yet so as by fire. In other words, it's all going to be burned up. Your whole life was wasted after you got saved. But he said, I'm going to let you into heaven. You'll be saved by the skin of your teeth, so to speak. One for Christ, you wouldn't make it. <laughs> Rewards are real. You may feel like, listen, don't tune me out just yet. You may feel like, well, everything I do just kind of turns sour. I try to do things for the Lord, and it doesn't work. My little grandson, Harrison, little sweetheart. Brother Weedo had been here all week, so I hadn't got to fellowship with little Harrison any. And so after Brother Weedo was gone, our meeting was finished. I got dressed one morning. <laughs> I think this might have been on Friday. 
put on my clean khakis and nice, clean, crisp shirt. And I'm sitting there getting ready for the day. And, and Harrison comes in. He's being carried by another, of course. <laughs> and I said, Papa's little boy, come here and see me. Oh, he's so happy to sit on my lap. So I sat him on the lap, and I'm bragging to the others. I said, man, he's been sitting here for a long time. He hadn't, he hadn't whimpered or groaned or moaned or cried, nothing. Boy, he just enjoys sitting with his papa. And so we sat there for quite a while. And I got a whiff. <laughs> my wife's busy in the kitchen. I said, honey, I smell something. I think Harrison may need a diaper change. Well, she's busy scurrying around. She didn't even act like she heard me. Wives can be that way, you know. They talk about husbands not listening. <laughs> well, I sat there for a little while longer and then felt a little rumble. <laughs> I said, honey, not only do I smell him, I, I felt a little thunder down there. <laughs> I said, maybe you need to come see about him. She's still just going about her stuff like nothing's going on. I thought, well, I guess it's okay. So we sat there for a pretty good while, just enjoying the little fella. And I noticed he'd had kind of a, his cheeks were kind of red and his eyes were just kind of set for a while. And then he got happy again. And so we sat there and we just fellowshiped, you know, just me and old Harrison fellowshipping. And she's come back in there finally. She decided, well, I better check his diaper. Yeah. And so... She reached down to pick him up, and when I stood up to give him to him, I'm talking about out both legs of that diaper on my fresh, crispy khakis. I mean, there's stuff all over me. I mean, all over. It's falling off on the floor, and I'm trying to get outside to get the rest of it off. And I can't believe he treated me that way. I was so good to him. Well, we had a little falling out. It was later that afternoon, might have been the next day. We're out, my wife, I was out there doing some mowing. She brought him out to watch me mow a little bit, and so I shot the mower off and came over to get him. Still a little bit miffed at him. So I go over there, and, and I was just going to speak to him. And when I got there to him, to speak to him, he reached out his arms for me like that smiling at me and suddenly I just forgot about that old poopy diaper you may feel like your whole world of service to the Lord may be nothing but trash but one day if you've done it for him one day when he holds out your arm he holds out his arms to receive you and he says well done thou good and faithful servant you'll forget about everything else that fell apart in this life because we've got a whole eternity to live in the next life. And that's where the rewards are. And that's where eternity is. And that's where eternal bliss and joy and pleasures forevermore exist. The first characteristic of a winner, someone who wants to run to win. The second, I've got to go fast. Winners are always in training. In 1 Corinthians 9.25, it says, Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate, Temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. And he uses the phrase in verse 26, beateth the air. Now when a boxer's in training, you know, he's always, they're dancing around like this in the boxing there, shadow boxing. 
Now, they're not hitting anything, not winning anything, but he's training. And the Christian is always in training, even in those bad times, even the times with the poopy diapers, even the times when you did something you thought was really outstanding in the church and nobody noticed. Even when you tried to serve the Lord and things just fell apart. That's part of your training. One thing it helps to do is get rid of pride out of your life. And it makes you ready for the next test and trial that comes along. It's a continual process. We live and learn. I adjusted my mower a couple of days ago. My my uh, 60 inch zero turn mower was cutting gaps. Dustin noticed it last time I mowed out here at church. He said, he didn't know it was my mower. He said, whoever mowed the church last time needs to adjust their deck. It's not cutting level. And I went and looked and I thought, well, how dare him say something about it? That was me. <laughs> and so I went and looked and sure enough, you see little ridges where, where the mower would cut lower on one side and look like kind of like a flat top that went up on one side, you know. And so I adjusted it a couple days ago. So I'm getting experience now leveling out the cutting thing. My wife asked me to cut the back of her hair yesterday. She could cut the sides, but she couldn't see the back. She wanted me to cut the back of her hair. She said she'd never ask me to do that again. I don't know why. I guess I need to learn more about haircutting. <laughs> you know what we do in life? By the things we mess up, we learn how to do it better next time. I had to adjust on that mower a couple of times. I learned well, that didn't fix it, so I'm going to have to adjust the other side or the back or the front. I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to cut her hair again or not, but <laughs> there's always room. Here's what I'm saying. There's always room for us to grow. We're keeping score where we used to be and where we are now. And I'm, I'm preaching and I'm teaching, but I'm also learning. When I study for a message, I'm getting more of it than I ever give to you. My wife said one time, said, honey, they don't want to know everything you've studied. <laughs> I'm learning. I was preaching for years and went to Bible college. And I'm preaching while I'm in Bible college and winning souls while I'm in Bible college and learning in classes while I'm in Bible college and got out of Bible college and started preaching again more. And after I was preaching again, I went for my master's degree. I'm at only age 72, I already got my master's degree. You know what I do? So I want to go for a master's degree. It keeps me fresh and moving from getting stagnant in the same place. You know, I could say, I've learned all I need to know about the Bible. That'd be a dangerous thing, wouldn't it? So I'm always trying to learn more. I may not be a good preacher, but I'm always studying on how to be a better preacher. I'm always reading books on homiletics, just like I had in Bible college 40 years ago. I read homiletics books to see how I can do a little better because some of those things I forgot and some of them I never learned. And so I'm always reading a homiletics book. How can I prepare my messages a little better? How can I present them better? So I'm learning and doing. And that goes for all of us. We ought to be learning and doing. Learning and doing. There's always room to improve. Like when Aaron, we lived over on 
105 Crestview and Aaron was learning how to ride his bike. He got up on it on that bike the first day. He said, I'm ready to learn, Dad. And so I kind of gave him a push off the top of the hill there and he goes down the yard. Boy, he's going, going. He's doing real good till he hit that windbreak of bushes. <laughs> he got dusted himself off. I said, did you make it? Did you break anything? No, I think I'm okay. I said, let's go back up the top of the hill and do it again. <laughs> and so we got up there. I pushed him off the second time. He's on that bike, man. He's going good. He's going down the hill. <laughs> he hits those bushes again. I don't know how many times he hit those bushes. He finally learned how to ride it. You know, we have to learn and do, and there's always room for improvement in the Christian life. We have to be motivated. We have to be motivated to do it, and we have to set our mind that we want to be a better Christian now on the winning side marching with the winners doing better than we did before winners are self controlled or better yet spirit controlled Paul used the phrase temperate in our text and it shows that he's under control you know how most people in America even in Christianity how they decide and operate in life by fickle emotions, <laughs> however they people go to a voting booth and vote for the candidate who lied to them the best, <laughs> and whoever seems to have the best story, motivated by emotions. You know what Christian ought to be guided by? Christian ought to be guided by the principles of this book, and forget the emotions. Emotions are real, and sometimes they're good, and sometimes they're bad. But this never is bad. Live by principle, not by emotion. Well, I got to quit. Vince Lombardi once said, winning is a habit. And so is losing. Winners don't become people with a good attitude because they're winning. Winners have a good attitude, and that makes them win. Be a better you. Michelangelo laid on his back when nobody, no other artist wanted to do it. He laid on his back on the Sistine Chapel for two years painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. All the other highfalutin artists of his day would not do it. <laughs> but he did. All those other artists are forgotten now, but you remember the name Michelangelo because he had a winning attitude and he said, it doesn't matter if it's hard, it doesn't matter if it's long, it doesn't matter if it's laborious, I'm going to do it. And that's what it takes to win in the Christian life is to not be a quitter. Just keep on going. Let's bow our heads, if you would, with me. Word of prayer. Father, I pray that you'd bless us. Lord, I pray you'd help Christians just to have that winning attitude, not a prideful attitude saying I'm, I'm a great person, but saying I've got a great Savior. Lord, all things are possible through Christ, and without him we can do nothing. And I pray that you'd bless us today and help us to know that only by his grace and only by his mercy and only by his power and the filling of his Holy Spirit are we able to accomplish anything. But Lord, let us lean on that even more heavily as time goes on that we would be the kind of Christians that's on the winning side 
marching with the winners. Father, I pray that if there's anyone under the sound of my voice who is not saved, they're just they're in the wrong race. And Lord, I pray that they'd just get in the real race today and say, I understand that I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I know that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins. I know there's no other way of salvation. So today, I receive Christ as my personal Savior so he can begin a good work in me. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed.